of the Pious and Elaborate Treatise Concerning Prayer and the Answer to Prayer by John Brown and Wamfrey. This chapter is, um, is considerations hence deduced. Uh, the reference is to the previous chapter. Uh, the previous chapter we looked at the nature of prayer and examined <coughs> prayer uh, in terms, not only in terms of what uh, what we find defined in our catechism, <clears throat> but John Brown takes us through a number of different words, terms that have been used in the Bible uh, to describe prayer, and each one we saw had something to tell us about the nature of prayer. What, what exactly is happening when we pray, what we're trying to achieve, what we're doing, uh, what God expects of us, how we ought to perceive ourselves vis-a-vis -vis God, and so on. And so, um, prayer, uh, the duty of prayer carries with it, as, as he pointed out, um, a certain world view. And I think at the, at the center of, of um, the world view is we are altogether dependent beings. God <coughs> is altogether sufficient. Um, everything that we lack, he has, all good things arise from God, um, he is both willing and able to answer our prayer, <clears throat> we of course have to follow the rules, <clears throat> not praying for things which are contrary to his revealed will, and uh, doing so uh, within the context of uh, what we would call the covenant of grace, within the context of, of this redemption that's been wrought in Christ. So the, the quote that, that Brown uses is John 14, 13 and 14, and the Bible verse, it's just, it's his uh, uh, pull verse or, or flagship verse for the whole book. Whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. <clears throat> we see in that um, a number of things. Uh, we've discussed some of them, and we'll be discussing other <coughs> points, but... Certainly keep in mind as you look at that verse from week to week, there is a presumption of approaching God through a mediator, as well as the promise that through the mediator, God is approachable, and God would have us to come to him uh, with our requests, our petitions. And that the... The um, range of petition <clears throat> is actually quite large, right? What whatsoever you shall ask. So, uh, 
the prohibitions in the Bible, the, the things that, that would be contrary to the will of God, um, in terms of, of what is on the table, allowable and um, possible to be asked, is this considered to be this vast array. And what is, in fact, um, contrary to that is what is spelled out. Right? So, in other words, the Bible isn't telling us everything that we're allowed to ask, but it is circumscribing or prohibiting certain things. So it's kind of like the opposite of the regular principle in terms of worship, where we're allowed to ask everything except for these kind of things. Yeah, we're, we're really given kind of a wide latitude uh, in terms of what it seems to be set here. And, and that really has to do with the fact that um, prayer, in a sense, is addressing the entire space between what is prophesied in the Bible, for which we can pray, all the way down to you know what we're having for lunch, right? I mean, it's it, it it's just from the the broadest uh, concerns which are outlined in the Bible to the most mundane things of the life of of any particular individual. Uh, prayer is concerned with that space, and in in a sense, orienting us within that space. <clears throat> so. Um, we're gonna we're gonna look at considerations that are deducible, um, and and this is fifty one. What are considerations uh, deducible? Uh, they would be um, any kind of instruction or improvement. This is fifty one. What are considerations? Any kind of instruction uh, or improvement that we can deduce from the nature of prayer. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> we've gone over, as, as I said, um, a number of, of terms, and each one of those terms gave us a, a nuance, right? Gave, or gave us some new insight into the nature of prayer. Not every one of them is emphasizing the same thing in prayer. And so although, uh, as I say, there's this idea of, of our, uh, the totality of our dependence upon God as the Almighty, uh, there are a number of nuances that attend to that as well. Mm -hmm. All right, with that in mind then, let's begin to look at some of these considerations or conclusions, consequences, and so on. And there are several that he draws out, several that we, uh, I think, should consider. <coughs> so the first, uh, 52, what's the first conclusion or consequence that should be drawn? 52A. Um, the first thing that we could could stand to uh, do is wonder. Uh, wonder at the, the great and merciful condescension of God, um, considering that he 
suffers sinners who've rebelled against him. Uh, people who've provoked him to such great wrath. He has, in fact, invited them to come boldly to a throne of grace. <clears throat> so, understanding that, we, we uh, I think, can understand that there is There is um, uh, something much more subtle uh, implied in this relation of prayer, uh, but it is something of a matter of amazement if you really consider it. We, you know, we think of ourselves as utterly dependent and so on, but. Brown is saying, well, pause and, and consider this part of it. You know, we're these horrible, wretched, awful sinners, and God, despite all of all of the negatives, and we could pile them on, uh, God still invites us to petition Him in prayer. That's kind of an amazing thing. <clears throat> So he, he says, and he points out that, that um, this is taught in some of the parables. But particularly, he points to Luke 11 and Luke 18. <clears throat> in Luke 11 is the story of the, uh, the person who has a friend show up and that person goes to uh, their friend at midnight seeking bread and begins to knock at the door <clears throat> and um, the person of course who is uh, the person's in bed uh, they don't want to get up and give them the bread but the, the conclusion is at the end of it all um, though he doesn't really want to do it, that person will probably get up and give you the bread because you keep knocking at the door. <clears throat> so, there are some things set forth in these parables uh, that he points out um, with respect to the wonderment. Uh, so 52b the, the things which are held forth in this, uh, beside being importunate, is that um, <coughs> there's an encouragement to be importunate, right? There's an encouragement. Uh, to being constant in prayer, to pray without fainting. And he says, <coughs> essentially, <coughs> if we had uh, if we had the right apprehension of the whole thing, the whole matter, we could not 
but uh, but perceive continually with wonderment the great condescension of God in all of this and and the <clears throat> the free grace and love of God that he would encourage us in this way when we think about you know God God not only is telling us to pray <clears throat> but he's actually encouraging us to be importunate, to be constant in prayer, right? Which is, is really, uh, it's magnifying that, or should magnify that sense of wonder at grace, yeah. And, and that, that whole idea of importunity is kind of what separates the Christian from the non-Christian. Because I guess people say stuff like, oh, well, I tried praying once, I didn't get an answer, so I, I'd abandon Christianity or whatever. When the true Christian is going to keep praying, correct? Yes. Yeah, Christians will continue to pray. And it really, I, I probably can't emphasize this enough, but if you don't pray, you have no reason to believe you're a Christian. There, there is, I mean, the, the whole point of this exercise <clears throat> is um, for you a moment of of um, self-recognition. You know, you have to recognize who you are and what you are before God. Uh, and then you also have to recognize who God really is and what he's done and, and so on. And so to, you know, to shift, to avoid prayer, you know, to make, to make uh, the worship of God something secondary in your life um, is to show that... You really should be asking yourself serious questions about your commitment to Christianity, i.e., whether or not you are a believer, or whether or not you're you're in it for some other reason, <coughs> right? So there's there's that, and I think this first point, this first consequence, uh, particularly in light of these parables, is is something which. Most people probably don't, uh, doesn't initially strike them, uh, but I, I think if you've been praying a while, if you have been um, a Christian for a while, if you have actually stopped and put down your, you know, your electronic devices and you know, turned, your, turned inward and meditated a bit, <clears throat> you really, even without these parables, um, you should probably perceive the great wonder of grace in the proposition that God would have us beseech him, that he would have us come to him and ask. And then wonder of wonders, right? I mean, just adding to that is the fact that he's telling it, telling us Oh, by the way, don't don't give up. Keep keep at it. Right? I mean, you might think that when God doesn't, uh, figuratively speaking, get out of bed and answer your prayer right away, that he's negating this idea that you know he would have us to petition him with prayer. Uh, but he's not. He's he's in fact 
um, exercising our patience and uh, possibly preparing to answer the prayer well, down the road, right? There's going to be an answer of some sort if you're asking something lawful in the name of Christ. There'll be some kind of, of return at some point. <clears throat> Remember, that, that was one of the things we talked about um, in, in the, the last couple of weeks, that the timing is, is God's when it comes to the answer. Let's move on to the second conclusion that we should draw. <clears throat> the second conclusion is, if, if we really apprehend the wonder of the grace of God open to us in prayer, uh, Brown says, think about this. You should wonder at the foolishness and ingratitude of people who won't pray. Think, think about what it would be like um, if you had the ear of the prince and could have anything in the kingdom and you did not avail yourself of that. What kind of ridiculous foolishness would that be? That, and I'll tell you what kind it is. It's pride. Your pride is what ultimately is what's keeping you from praying. <clears throat> Right. The the less you pray, the more it proves you're proud. You you have a proud spirit, because you're not humble before God. You don't really think you need God. You think you and God can get along if you are religious. You think you and God can get along on your terms, and you can manage everything you do. You don't need to start the day beseeching Him because you know. I mean, in, in America, you start the day right, you have a good breakfast or something stupid like that. That's the idea. In, in, in the Bible, <clears throat> yeah, or I have a cup of coffee uh, or whatever. You have some routine. But scripturally speaking, starting the day right is pray. There's some time set aside for pray. You know, it doesn't have to be Hours and hours. Some people do. Some people don't. It may not be uh, practical to spend a, a super large amount of time. Nonetheless, there ought to be some pause in your life each day. You know, at the beginning of the day. Yeah. Is he going to talk at some point in this book about how many times we're supposed to pray? Because didn't David pray multiple times a day? Like, was it three or seven <clears throat> yeah, times? Yeah. And, and certainly, there are different. Um, there are different occasions for prayer throughout the day. There are different um, different situations demand different amounts of time. Uh, generally, you know, longer prayers ought to be done on your time um, because that's where. Uh, prayer is to be offered up, or you know there are there are exceptions to that. I mean, the, you know, at the Westminster Assembly, uh, some of the prayers, from what I understand, went on for uh, for close to an hour before they would start debating. You know, and I, and I, I expect that they were praying literally over every point that they were going to discuss that day. 
you know, and probably over everything they discussed the day before. And with an eye to what was coming and with an eye to what had gone before and with an eye to the effect on the three kingdoms and so on. You know, I mean, you start to spin that out and uh, you can begin to see that there's a lot and, and the, given the seriousness of what they were doing, um, they're going to do that. But you know, generally, generally speaking, long prayers, um, particularly when the point is to, uh, I think, be a display of religiosity, are frowned upon in the Bible, in, at least in public. Right? Jesus says, "Go into your closet and do that." In other words, do it privately. But there, so again, different occasions. Uh, different rules, different considerations, um, all of these come in. But anyway, so 53a, the, the second conclusion is, wonder of wonders at the ingratitude and the folly of people who won't pray, uh, knowing this, it's just, <clears throat> he thinks it's absolutely uh, obnoxious and, 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 um, and ridiculous that, you know, having um, having these things before us, having all of this um, all of these opportunities set before us, that we would. Um, We would rather not come. And he says that, that it's unimaginable. You know, how uh, how can you say that God is your friend? And he just he sort of is berating people who think this way uh, because it is foolish. And then so fifty three d what complaint of the Lord is noted here? <coughs> he notes um, the. Uh, the complaint of the Lord from Isaiah 43, 22. Be thou, uh, but thou hast not called upon me, O Jacob, but thou hast been weary of me, O Israel. And um, he says that this is, uh, this is an odd thing, he's indicating, you know, to... Are you are you weary to use God as your friend? Um, you know to call upon His help in necessity. What what is this? What gives? What uh, what are you thinking? <clears throat> All right. The third conclusion that should be drawn. is we see that in prayer um, it is the heart that is mostly to be occupied and exercised. So 54b, what is exhibited in right prayer, um, what is exhibited is a heart 
seeking God and seeking, uh, particularly seeking in order to speak to God. So th- this gets into um, the whole question. He's going to get into seven points here in just a moment. We're going to go through the right prayer. But <clears throat> the overarching point is that prayer is not primarily or simply about words that you speak. The words are important, uh, obviously, that you're not praying for things that are uh, contrary to the revealed will of God. But if you're just, and and this gets to um, why the Reformed churches, generally speaking, uh, have been... Hostile, sometimes outright hostile toward, uh, but never more really, uh, I think, in, in the stricter reform circles, never more than um, sort of tolerant toward the idea of, of set forms of prayer. Uh, and uh, you, for example, could read books on family worship and they'll tell you sometimes uh, to use uh, from time to time to help you learn to pray to use um, uh, set forms of prayer and there are books of people's prayers or what have you to consult that sort of thing uh, to to give you guidance uh, to some extent And, and that's from that point of view, they're looking at it pedagogically, but they don't like the idea of teaching people uh, simply to pray by rote. You know, like reciting the Apostles' Creed. You know, you can recite the Apostles' Creed and not believe it. Um, We want you to believe it. In prayer the same thing can happen, but it's, in in some respects, it is more immediately uh, deleterious to the person praying. Uh, because prayer is to be offering up of your desires. And if you don't really desire, you're just repeating words and so on, you're making a mockery. You're actually... Um, Blasphemy, Calling right? down. Hmm? It's kind of blasphemy, right? Well, there is, I think, an element of blasphemy involved. You're, you're sort of asking God to, to um, ignore everything you say. Right? So we should. It's, it's better. It would better to have a short, fervent prayer that is well, uh, well rooted in you. You know, expressing a real desire. Then have some long drawn out liturgical thing that doesn't have much meaning to you. You haven't really a Pharisaical prayer. Yeah. Um, so if you have, let's say, a recording of uh, yourself or someone else, a pastor, whatever, praying on tape somewhere, every time that that tape is played, because the heart is not affected in that 
recording of a prayer, that's almost the same as like those Buddhists or Hindus or whoever spin those like little cylinders of prayers written on them to sort of send the yeah. words so, up. So, yeah, let me tell, there, there's actually an interesting story a friend of mine told me one time. He was going to chapel at uh, Bob Jones University, and they had a they had a tape of uh, I don't know one of the Bob Joneses I guess it was probably senior he was dead, and they had a tape at this chapel and they played it and of course it, it started with him praying, and um, when he finished praying. This person overheard someone say, that prayer was so good, I'll bet God heard it all over again. And I thought to myself when he told that, he was laughing about it, but I thought, this is probably kind of how people think. And yeah, that Buddhist, you know, we just go up and spin the the prayer wheel, right? It's the same kind of thing. Uh, I'm, I'm really... Don't think it's a good idea to record prayers um, when things are being recorded. Uh, one of my concerns with with say live streaming would be to avoid um, recording the prayer for that reason because I think subsequently it could induce superstition yeah it's kind of like plagiarism like you're not just supposed to take someone's prayers and just copy it row for row and, and just and not learn something from it you're supposed to take what like learn what they're praying for understand why they're praying for it and kind of incorporate kind of yeah I, and, and it's not it. that I, I don't think it that it's valuable for people to hear other people praying and learning things about that from them um, I, but I, I think that human nature is such that we would be all too content to let someone else do all the praying for us. When the, the words themselves have zero power. Yeah, and, and it, it, look, think about the discussion that the Apostle Paul has, 1 Corinthians 14, about tongues versus prophecy. Right? Paul wants to be able to speak in a manner intelligible to the people. Why? So that they can say amen. In other words, they can join that, that's why historically the church has joined its amen to the public <coughs> prayers, right? Because that, that's an expression that you, are, uh, that you are actually thinking about and, and mulling over the prayer that you are making it your own. And maybe even you're adding to it as you, you, know, you hear the words spoken. You're taking it into another direction. You're adding... You know, you, you think of a particular situation you're aware of, or whatever. You're you're doing something with that. That's fine. Um, it, but at the end of it all, you know, corporately to be able to say Amen, you can't do that when you. I, I don't think really when you have um, a, a liturgy of prayer in that way, uh, it's much harder to. Um, uh, to do that because the, again the temptation when we have forms is to hang on to words and, and not enter into the words and so what Brown is saying here is look we need to understand this is our third consequence that God wants us to pray from the heart not just <coughs> not just and, and think about how often the Bible condemns what it calls lip service right we, we don't like 
you know, when someone gives us lip service, all right, but when, you know, when we do that to God, God knows how shallow and hypocritical we're being, right, in our interface with him. Okay, so we don't, you know, we hate it when somebody just says, yeah, 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 when we're telling them, you know, they need to do this or they need to behave that way or whatever. You hate it when your kids do that. Uh, you hate it when somebody does that to you in a situation where you're the superior or whatever. Um, <coughs> think about, magnify how aggravating it is to you uh, in, in, in a sense. God is hearing people all the time praying and that's what it sounds like. Yeah, 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 yeah. <clears throat> so, the heart being joined to it, this is very important. Right? He's, he says, prayer is no prayer, by the way. <clears throat> prayer is no prayer if your heart's not in it. <clears throat> if you're not rightly affected in your approach to God, it's really as if you're not praying at all. Okay, so don't fool yourself. Don't fool anyone else. But if you're not rightly affected, let me suggest, before I go any further in, in the book here, first thing you can pray is that God would make you rightly affected to pray. Like, like David prays, like, create with me a clean heart. Exactly. Just start where you are. Don't, don't try to, you know, don't try to jump ahead of yourself. It's part of being honest in prayer. I mean, if you can't be honest in prayer... You're, you are fundamentally a dishonest person. And we all struggle with this, right? We're dishonest by nature. We're liars. All men are liars. And that's the whole point of prayer. Like, you either realize where you are, <coughs> and God will condescend even, you know, with, with a hardened heart. It's, it's and, part of prayer, as we saw, is it's God uh, put, putting us in a place where he's saying, now, be honest. Between me and you, be honest. Right? What... Like, what do you have to gain from lying to God? I mean, in order to lie to God, you really have to lie to yourself. Uh, but again, pride. That's why I say pride is the number one factor. People who are proud don't pray. Won't pray. They don't want to engage with others to pray. They just hate it. They avoid it. <clears throat> Despite everything else, they, they just avoid it. They find it you know, um, at a low grade, probably irksome, and at a higher grade, <coughs> if they really thought about it, uh, it's threatening to where they are. <coughs> All right, so there are seven points then made to defend Brown's notion of right prayer, 55. <coughs> so the first thing he says, 55A, his first point is, We shouldn't consider the best prayers to be those that have the finest words or the best flourishes of expression. <clears throat> Ready? And he says, look, it may be someone prays and they just continually use scripture expression. And by the way, if you, if you consult Matthew Henry's method of prayer... Matthew Henry is going to advise you to do just that, right? To use scripture expression as much as possible. And that's a good idea, right? It's very helpful. Uh, it's an approved it's, method. It's a, yeah, it's a good, 
it's, it, it's good to pray over the Word of God, right? But, of course, not everything that you desire is explicit there, so you're going to you're going to eventually need to expand on that. Kind of like creeds and confessions, where it's good to stick to Scripture, but when the Arians start quoting <clears throat> Scripture <clears throat> yeah. and twisting it, you have to kind of elaborate in your own words. <clears throat> right. So he's saying, but don't don't think that you know somebody who can pray in great flourishes of, of Scripture quotation, for example, that that's necessarily a good prayer. He said, you know, the best prayer is when the heart is most exercised and lifted up to God. So, like, sometimes, like, you know, some, some when someone's in great distress, they're not necessarily going to be extremely eloquent. They're just going to be like, "I'm a father." <laughs> and so, the other, the other uh, example that he had given at the beginning in the, in the parable, in the first conclusion, uh, I believe, in Luke 18, somebody has a Bible. Uh, Luke 18, beginning of verse 1, that the, it's the publican, the story of the publican and the uh, Pharisee. Luke 18, verse 1. That, oh, no, no, that's, okay, it's still going on about fainting and not. All right, so anyway, to, to go to... The, the example that I would use here would be the publican and the um, the Pharisee praying, right? And the, the Pharisee stands there and what does, he, what does he say? You know, I thank God I'm not like other men. You know, I, I uh, give tithes of all that I make and I pray three times a day and I, <coughs> I do this and I do that and he's going on and on and on. And you get the sense there that he's actually probably quite eloquent. But the publican falls down on his face and all he can get out is God be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says that's the prayer that was heard. right? Why? Because that guy, his heart was lifted up. He was actually exercised over that. You know, he was actually beseeching God. The other guy is reciting to God a list of, of why he thinks he's qualified mm -hmm. for heaven. Right? This guy, the publican, is actually uh, entering into the spirit of prayer. What you're supposed to be, uh, you know, the, the way you ought to be approaching God. In a sense, deeply humbled. Right? And, and deeply... Uh, with, a, with a very profound sense of uh, hope and gratitude that God will be merciful. And that effectual fervent prayer avails <clears throat> yeah. much for him. Exactly. But the, the fervent part of the effectual fervent prayer is the heart being fervent, not mm. a fervency of words that you're just spewing out. No, and, and, and look... Unless I don't, those I don't words think, are the heart... Yeah, and I don't, think, I don't think that, that um, Brown is saying words are A, unimportant, or B... Um, that we shouldn't study to use, uh, you know, better expressions in praying, all right? Mm. What, what he's emphasizing is that that alone will actually equal nothing if there's nothing behind it, right? If there's no real motion of the Spirit behind it. 
You know, so all the prayers of the church, for example, in the public assemblies of the church, they're going to avail you nothing if you don't enter into them. You know, if you're sitting there while we're praying corporately and you're thinking about, um, you know, what you have to do at work or uh, did I turn off the lights or did I, you know, did I do this or I wonder what so-and-so is doing. You know, your mind is wandering, your heart is wandering. You're everywhere but where you should be. That prayer is not for you. And for you to say amen at the end of that is an expression of hypocrisy. If you are if you are entering into that prayer, uh, not only are you warranted to say amen, you should say amen. Right? Because you should express your corporate identity with the church. And that's the point at which in the public prayers of the church you're being asked to do it. Right. That's the that's the extent of our prayer liturgy in Reformed churches is the people say Amen. You know, you you are invited to um, actually pray. And that's that's why we line the Psalms as well, right? So that we understand what we're gonna sing. Right. We 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 want we want people to understand what they're doing. We're not um, you know, it's this is not about just sim- a simple implicit faith. Right? There's more to it. All right, let's move on to the second point, uh, 55b. He says, in terms of right prayer, um, although we're obliged to glorify God with with our glory to speak out our prayers and praises to his glory when we're called to it he says at the same time prayer uh, can be made to the most high when the voice is not even heard Hmm. like Samuel's mother well yeah she was probably mumbling because they thought she was Hmm. drunk they may have heard her mumbling but he points to Nehemiah 2 for uh, where Nehemiah prays to the God of heaven while he was serving the king at the table. He's probably not vocalizing. Right. We're, we'll talk about some of these kinds of prayer. This is what the Puritans would have called ejaculatory prayer, where you're, you're praying at the moment. Something comes up and you, you want to dispatch some petition to God in the immediacy of the moment. There's something which comes to mind. Right. But that too, I mean, that moment when he prays, um, is his heart exercised? Right. <clears throat> he actually does mention Hannah. Um, her lips moved, but she spoke in her heart. So, It goes to his point, though, that the issue is an issue of heart. right? The heart cry. Not necessarily you know, the loud uh, sound of the voice. <clears throat> but God is, God is, as he says, always looking on the heart. So we, we don't want to confuse those two things. You know, you're not going to be heard by your much speaking. Uh, you're not going to be heard by your loud speaking. <clears throat> Remember the priests of Baal, what they did? Right? They, they started to cut themselves and they're crying out, Oh, Baal, hear us. That's, that's what pagans do. You know, when they they uh, have the sense that God isn't hearing them, they they 
get louder and louder as if God now God doesn't need you to be loud. There, there are times to pray aloud, and there are times when it's sufficient to pray uh, silently. You know, the issue is, is this something arising from the, the heart? Are you being moved to this from a right disposition? It is kind of funny, uh, funny way to think about it, I guess, because if, if like that Bob Jones University whatever prayer, you know, you get so like, wow, that, that was amazing. If you play that logically to its end, if you're just sitting on the bus sort of praying to yourself, that must be the most worthless prayer ever because there's no sounds coming out. <clears throat> right. There's no fancy words being said. Yeah, there, there's it, it becomes kind of... Uh, I, I guess bizarre. Like, there's probably a reason why um, this is <coughs> talked about a lot, uh, prayer, but I doubt it's done as much as it's talked about. <coughs> 55C, third point, and this is something I've already raised, and that is to pray by a book or after prescribed form uh, with words learned by heart, spoken like a parrot, uh, that's not the right way to, to pray. And <clears throat> um, he says we, we don't find a prescribed form of prayer in the Bible although we do find what we might call directories of prayer. You know, it says, people have you know, perhaps wondered, why do we have a directory for public worship? Well, we're given a number of things. Uh, some are examples of the kinds of things for which we ought to pray publicly in the church. And, you know, we try to follow that um, in the course of our praying in the public assemblies of the church. Uh, in, in a more reformed time, all the churches would be praying that sort of thing together. Okay? Uh, it allows for particular, um, particular providences or particular events, whether local, national, or international, to be recognized and, and brought into the prayer of the church. There are various opportunities, because it's a directory. It's not a liturgy of prayer, it's a directory. So we're not tied to the very words. Um, and, and yet at the same time, he's, you know, let's be clear, he's not saying that there will be zero repetition when we are praying. <coughs> I mean, there are things for which we pray daily or weekly or, or what have you. Um, they may not change uh, substantially to warrant changing the words very much. That's not the point. point is when you pray, it, it needs to be moved by the heart, and, and that uh, 
that's not going to happen. It'll be much less likely to happen when someone is praying from a prescribed form and everybody, rather than entering into that prayer, they're all sort of reading along or reciting along, which is really confusing, yeah. So, so but when you pray, obviously you're not supposed to use vain repetitions like, you know, keep repaying, praying for something over and over again, but... Right. In the situation where you're praying for, you know, thy kingdom come, for the millennium to come, for the nations to be converted. Yeah. When you do pray for that in, in your time of prayer, you're supposed to pray and believe that it's going to happen. Not that keep praying and then it, praying because you don't believe it's going to happen. It, yeah, believe it. Yeah, all of that. So when it comes to these prayers that you repeat over and over again throughout the course of your life, when you pray at that moment, you have to believe. And then you move on to the next thing. You want to believe the, if it's a promise or a prophecy, yeah, you want to believe it. If it's something, you know, for which God has told us uh, petition him for this or that, again, you should be approaching it from that point of view, that frame of believing he will do what he said he would do and so on. <clears throat> All right, uh, 55D or the fourth point. We should learn then that in prayer, our special care, our special concern should be to, to have the heart kept in a praying frame and posture. So, what is he saying? Most of all, in prayer, guard your heart. It, it, there's a sense in which in prayer perhaps more than any other thing you're going to do um, there's more opportunity probably uh, to um, to provoke God in, in the sense that uh, it's very easy to lapse into saying something just simply by rote, not uh, not really fixing your heart. I mean, one reason why we close our eyes when we pray, uh, one reason why we're directed to uh, either to kneel or to lift up our hands or to turn our faces heavenward or what have you, even though our eyes are closed and all of that, is we are not so much concerned with the orientation of the body, but we're using the body to remind us to orient our hearts in that direction. It's kind of subduing the body. Yeah, it, it, you know, again, there are people who get caught up in uh, a lot of these things about posture for prayer and all of that. And I, I think there are certainly some things that are that are acceptable and some things which are not, particularly in public, the public worship of God. Um, that said, <coughs> God is most concerned here that your heart is being joined to the prayer, right? That you're keeping your heart focused on the prayer. And um, if all that you're concerned about is, you know, well, I've, I've struck upon the proper posture. Mm. 
you know, and those people over there aren't. That, that that's missing the point of prayer. All right, fifth, the fifth point, fifty-five E. Once we um, we understand that what God is seeking is the heart, the main thing in prayer is the heart's being to God, then he says we can see that other work does not need to hinder or obstruct all prayer. So he says, you know, man may pray while walking uh, in the streets or in company. You know, whether he's alone or in company. Uh, it may be he can pray in his ordinary employment or calling. You know, he can have that sigh or thought, uh, that ejaculatory prayer dispatched to heaven, such as Nehemiah's prayer. He points to that. Um, all of these are acceptable. These are all, in fact, um, so many, I think uh, some of the Puritans would call this like the spiritual breaths of the soul. Breathing out these petitions, desires to God. He's saying that's fine. You know, the issue is a heart speaking to God. So... um, there is, I, I think, uh, was among the rabbis, they had the discussion um, and that went something like this, and you could really, you could fill in the blank anyway, but the, the, <coughs> with any activity. But the rabbis essentially said, um, may I eat while I'm praying? And they said, of course not. And they said, may I pray while I'm eating? And they said, of course. And there's a sense in which that's what he's saying here. Right? So he's not he's not saying here that this is the same as necessarily setting aside times to pray. And he'll he is going to deal with that. You know, that's a good thing, it's a laudable thing, it's in many ways a necessary thing. But he's saying that because what God is seeking is the heart speaking to him, that it is possible to pray while you're engaged in other activities than prayer. But when is when is your own when is the public or the time to pray? Nothing should be distracting you. Yes. Right? Yeah. That, and, and again, I mean that that's a reason why. One reason why uh, in Reformed churches, uh, the when they build um, meeting houses and so on, uh, they they tend to be very plain. Right? They've tended to avoid ornamentation. They've tended to avoid anything particularly ostentatious. It's been, meant to be uh, just sort of um, plain and and uh, not necessarily drab, but but they don't want there to be <coughs> distractions. You don't want to add to people's distractions. You know, so you don't want to have all kinds of elaborate architecture. 
I mean, you know, fr and frankly, this is just an aside, but I've heard over the years uh, several cases where the churches have had serious problems over things like the color of the carpet or the kind of wallpaper. There have literally been fights <coughs> in churches about that sort of thing. Now imagine if people are concerned at that kind of level, you know, you know that all that other stuff becomes a distraction. Right? It's just the, the more the more out of the ordinary something presents itself to you, uh, the, the more easily you will be distracted by it in, in all likelihood. So we don't want to do that. So it's sort of like, while it's appropriate, let's say you're sitting at work, if the thoughts from, you know, Lord's Day sermon are, you know, bouncing out of your head throughout the day, that's very much appropriate. But to expect to be able to bring your work to service, I mean, obviously the Lord's Day is <coughs> aside, right. just in terms of that priority structure, it's all messed up. Yes. Because the, the prayer is number one. Yeah, but I mean, attaching it, it to and, other and, and things. I think in some ways it's even worse now. Uh, it, there's more, greater temptation because you know you can be contacted now because people, uh, if you don't shut your phone off, they can get to you any time of the day, right? So you can you can be bothered by work stuff in incur you know this incursion on the Lord's day. And I'm not I know there are matters of mercy and necessity, but you know, very often, because most people have such a low regard for the Lord's Day, what they think of as mercy or necessity is not really, right? Uh, or there's something that could be done temporarily um, that would suffice until, you know, Monday, right? Uh, that sort of thing. Right, but they're not thinking that way, and people become agitated if they can't. I know if they can't get hold of some people or whatever. Uh, anyway, that that's in a sense, <clears throat> that's a matter of training uh, the people around you that you're, you know, you're just not going to be uh, bothered, right? And 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 the more they bug you for the little stuff, the less you're going to be inclined because you you know that they don't. They don't have discernment at all. Um, different situation probably if you're dealing with, you know, if you're like a, a surgeon in an emergency room or something like that. Right? That, that somebody dealing with uh, people in a state of life and death. Right? <clears throat> okay, so this the uh, sixth point. <clears throat> 55F. Uh, he says, and we, could, we should be instructed that the best preparation for prayer is not getting a, a set of good words together, but rather <coughs> getting our heart set in a right and praying frame. Some people are more worried about what they're going to say, saying that shouldn't be your primary concern. Again, he's not saying it's of no concern, particularly if you're praying publicly, you know, 
you're involved in public prayer for some reason. But <clears throat> that's a lesser. Just get your heart right. Get the frame of your heart, you know, set it in a praying frame. Um, and finally, the seventh point, 55G, he says, actually, when the heart prays, uh, very often a lot will, will go out, or a lot will be enfolded into the prayer in fewer words. So he says, um, he points to Stephen as he's uh, dying after being stoned. He just says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. He says, maybe a few words, but his heart is enlarged to God. And he said, that's a big prayer with God. And God sees the heart. <clears throat> right. So, he, he, sees so he, he sees the the, the motives behind the prayer. <clears throat> he sees the enlargement of the heart in that, and that's that's what is uh, primary. All right. Let's move on to the fourth conclusion that we should draw. Um, 50, 56A. <clears throat> We should understand then that there's actually greater difficulty praying to God rightly than we ordinarily might have imagined. And he says, you might have um, thought to yourself, oh, this isn't so bad. If I just get the right words together, everything will be fine. And again, I can think of a case a number of years ago someone asked me to help them frame a prayer. Uh, they were going to be praying at some public event. And the entire focus was on finding the right words. Brown's saying that's entirely it's entirely the wrong way of thinking about it. Right? Not that that's absolutely unimportant right but boy getting the heart right <clears throat> that's the first thing so uh, 56b then why is there difficulty why do we have such trouble in this what are we talking about We're talking about the heart of man which is deceitful and wicked desperately wicked who can know it right so he says our, our hearts are naturally so untractable and so averse to the exercise of prayer because there are so many evils and corruptions in them and all of that opposed to this Christian exercise he says so take that for one <clears throat> but he says the other side of that is you've got that going in inwardly in yourself but Satan is also going to be involved with these inward suggestions and outward temptations 
you know, basically trying to distract you from the one thing needful in prayer, which is having your heart set right. <coughs> so you've got old nature and the devil, or as, as John says, you get the, you're dealing with the world of flesh and the devil. <clears throat> and it's all going to give you trouble. It's all going to make this a very difficult endeavor. It's ne never going to be as easy as it may seem when you're reading the words because you are praying in the real world. <clears throat> and the real world is fallen, and sadly you are too. So the fifth conclusion that we can draw, D7A, he says we should see then that we have cause to mourn um, because we fail so much in our praying. But he says there's also, we, we should see how much we need divine help, the assistance of the Spirit to help our infirmities, so that we would pray as we ought. So he asked the question, you know, what will not carry us through acceptably? What, what can't carry us through this duty acceptably? He says, learning, this is 50, uh, 57b, uh, learning readiness of speech and like abilities, uh, they're not going to carry us through acceptably. Right? Because why? God isn't seeking mere words. He's not looking for lip service. He's looking for something much more profound and deeply rooted in who we are. <clears throat> you know, I'm, I'm actually drawn back to the uh, Calvin seal. If you've ever seen Calvin's seal, it's a hand with a heart in it. And it, it says in, um, I think it was French or Latin under it, probably both, <clears throat> depending on who, who got it. <coughs> but it, it says promptly and sincerely. <coughs> and that is the answer to the demand. Give me thine heart. Calvin's answer, promptly and sincerely. That's, this is our problem. Uh, we can't do that on our own. But it's exactly what we have to do. If we would pray aright. Alright, uh, the sixth conclusion to be drawn, 58. is that there are then several failings and faults in our prayers uh, which might be mentioned. 
And it'll bring us to our last question, uh, which is actually 12 points, 12 failings noted, 59. <coughs> so what kind of failings, <coughs> what kind of faults Well, the first one, 59A, first failing is our souls are, are not pressed with uh, the sense and feeling of what it is we want or lack. This is it. They, these things, <coughs> if we really had a proper <clears throat> a proper grasp of of what we didn't have he says that would pinch us right and our petitions as a result of this he said they they die in our mouths because we really don't in other words if we're praying we're not really pressed in our spirit, in our in our heart, by what we don't have, what we're seeking. We're not really offering up a desire, are we? We don't really desire it. They said our, our petitions are going to die. <clears throat> he said, sense and feeling made those blind men to cry out, Son of David, have mercy on us. So uh, that's, you know, that's a very important thing. We really need to be pinched with our wants. But um, we're not. That's a failing. Uh, second, 59B, second, he says, we don't value rightly the mercies that we're asking. We either don't see the absolute necessity, we stand in need of, of those things, or uh, there's something else. We, we ultimately saying we're undervaluing the mercies of God that we're seeking, and and that again is choking us. <clears throat> right. If you're asking for something, but you really don't want it. How persistent are you going to be? If you're asking for something, but you don't really think you need it, how persistent are you going to be? You know, you're asking for something, but you don't really think it's necessary or valuable. How persistent are you going to be? See, we need to value these things rightly. And we don't. And that's a failure. All right, uh, three, the third failing noted, 59C. He says, we, we don't know the greatness of our loss and misery lacking the blessings, nor do we know the happiness and felicity in enjoying them. <clears throat> in fact, he goes on to say, we're very often indifferent whether we receive uh, what it is we're asking 
or not. That's a failing. We should ask believing that we will receive. We should ask <coughs> with a sense that we um, <clears throat> both lack it and we need it. It needs to be desire. <coughs> So the fourth failing, 59D, he said we very soon sit up. That is, we, we um, faint and weary of our doing. We don't continue to cry and knock. In other words, we're willing to take no for an answer. He's saying real praying is not being willing to take no for an answer. <clears throat> really praying for direction. <coughs> well, you may be you may be praying to know, yeah, to know something in that sense. Uh, but, but yeah, but you're you're going to get an answer, right? But if you don't get an answer, if you don't get clear direction, a lot of people <coughs> are content with that. They didn't get any kind of clear directive. Well. You know, if you're if you're okay with that, then you didn't really pray um, because you didn't offer up a desire, right? You you may have made a a, a request. The request might have been um, <clears throat> might have been grounded in some uh, you know passive. Uh, Passive sense that you know it'd be nice that if, if I knew, it'd be nice, but you know again, there's not that sense it's necessary. Well, it's more of a selfish reason that it's not for the glory, glory of God. <clears throat> it could be. I mean, if you're not, if you don't really think it's necessary, then there there are other kinds, you know, there are other issues lying behind it, which is what he's kind of hammering away. Uh, at that point, that there, these are these are failings, and these are, uh, frankly, these are, are relatively large failings, and they undermine prayer. They undermine uh, effectual prayer. Uh, all right, five to a fifth failing, fifty-nine e. Our formality and customariness in performing the duty of prayer. And <clears throat> he says that um, if very often what this is doing is stopping the mouth of natural conscience uh, or in some other way undermining the um,
this whole idea of, of uh, setting our hearts into the prayer. <coughs> All right, six, six failing. D9F. Uh, we, he says we could discover here uh, the lack of spiritual heavenly frame that should be in our prayers. Our hearts are not lifted up to the Lord. Right? We're, in other words, he's saying we're content to pray uh, sunk under sinful lusts and cares of the world. And we're just not going to pray <clears throat> to find release from that. We're... we're um, Content uh, to do whatever praying we do under this what what he would probably call a cold formalism as well. <clears throat> All right, the seventh failing fifty nine G. Seventh failing is. Um, we're not base enough in our own eyes when we approach God. So we don't see our own vileness uh, in the way that we ought, and therefore we can't speak rightly to Him. We've already talked about this a little bit. Uh, but this get, goes back to that whole issue of are we approaching God in a in a, a right frame of humility? Are we properly humbled before God? Um, we're not going to offer up a petition. We're not going to lift up our hearts to Him in the way that we ought unless we first perceive our own baseness, our own vileness in in that regard. Because think about some of the things he said earlier in this chapter. You know, you're certainly not going to be sitting there contemplating the wonder of wonders that God would have you petition him uh, with prayer if you sort of think that well this you know this is just the way it is or maybe even I deserve it. It's more than just the way it is. It's more than, uh, certainly way more than you deserve it because you don't. <clears throat> and it didn't have to be this way, right? Uh, so if you had a proper sense, and herein I think is actually one of the strengths of, uh, historically it's been one of the great strengths of the Western church, <coughs> least since Augustine, and that is the continual hammering uh, of this issue of original sin and the idea that we are conceived in iniquity. Now, it's been papered over in the Roman Church to a large degree, and of course, you know, the Wesleyans and the Arminians, um, they pretty well uh, have found ways of, of brushing this whole issue aside. But the idea of man's native depravity is very helpful uh, to bring you to a realization of just how vile you are before God. 
So you're not approaching God thinking in any way you deserve it or uh, after all he owes you something. Not like that at all. So he says God gives grace to the humble but he resists the proud. And there again that idea of pride being in the way of prayer uh, comes up and I think that's exactly right. All right. uh, The eighth failing that he mentions this would be uh, 59H. It says, We're great strangers to the holy freedom and boldness of access that the Lord allows his children uh, when they come to him. And we don't pray to him as a father reconciled in Christ. He says there's a certain boldness that we should have. There's a certain, he calls it a holy familiarity. And so, <clears throat> this one is an interesting failing that he's pointing out because he just told us what? Consider how abject and vile you are. That's in yourself. Now he's saying there's, other, there's this other failing where you don't really sufficiently uh, understand, appreciate, or appropriate what you are to him in Christ. Because in Christ you have room for what he's calling a holy familiarity. We can cry, Abba, Father. Uh, We can approach God in a much more familiar way. You know, so... um, and, and I've pointed this out to people uh, again and again over the years, but I think it's a great example of, I think, what he's talking about, and that is the interchange between God and Abraham regarding the disposition of, of uh, Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. And the back and forth, where Abraham is arguing with God, And, and really, Abraham's problem there is that he doesn't go far enough, does he? It's very similar to the case of the king. You may remember that the prophet told him to take this bundle of arrows and smite the ground. And he smites <coughs> the ground three times, and the prophet looks at him and said, Oh, he said, if you have only done it five or six times, you would have utterly defeated your enemy. He said, but you're only going to defeat him three times, and they're going to come back, and they're going to plow you under. That's <coughs> holy familiarity is being willing to take that bundle of arrows and just keep beating them on the ground until you've gotten your purpose, right, with God. Arguing with God, not just to get it down to, you know, what if you know what if there are ten? What about what if there are five? What if there are, there's one? God still saved the one, but you know it would have saved the whole city. <laughs> um, Abraham doesn't push it to a certain point. And I think Brown is saying, you know, there's a holy familiarity. Maybe we can learn something from that. You know, there's a, there is a sense in which praying, there's a holy argument going on with God. We're, we're arguing against, very often, his providence, aren't we? 
Um, and we're doing it, we're making the argument based upon his promises, his precepts, his prophecies, and so on. Okay, so the holy familiarity is recognizing that in Christ uh, you have the ground for doing that. It's not your own righteousness that you're pleading in all of that. Uh, that, after all, uh, we already have disposed of that. All right, 59, ninth point, 59i. The ninth failing is um, we don't know what it is to watch for and lay hold on the fit opportunity for prayer. Right, we, he says, you know, wrestlers watch and lay hold of any advantage they can of the person with whom they wrestle. And we're wrestling with God. And he's saying if we were, if we were not uh, falling down on the job here, we would be waiting for, uh, among other things, we would watch and lay hold of those opportunities for prayer that are provided. He said we'd be like the, the poor woman of Canaan who wrestles with Christ for a mercy to her daughter. And what happens there? And Jesus is saying, you're essentially saying you're a Gentile, you're a dog. Right? We don't give the, the bread of, of the children to dogs. Now, somebody who's an unbeliever might be totally discouraged by that. This woman instead says, wait a minute. Even the dogs get the crumbs under the table. <coughs> she, she found an opportunity in there. And he's saying that that's kind of what we need to do. You know, we're wrestling with God about providence. What is the outcome going to be? Well, if we can find that promise, that precept, that prophecy, whatever. <coughs> He's saying, you know, we should take hold of that. Right? Improve your situation. Improve uh, know when to lay hold for a fit opportunity for prayer. All right, the tenth failing, 59J, is... We're not open-hearted enough when we address God. What he means is we don't, we're not, uh, we're not full and free in telling God everything in our heart. And I, I know from experience this is true. Right? This is this is a a truism, and I'm sure Brown. Is writing from his own experience here to some extent. <coughs> right? We have this hesitation. But when you stop and think about it, I mean, how, how foolish is that? We're going to reserve and hide something from God. You know, what, we're, what we're hiding is really our evil frame, he says. You know, we're trying to disguise something uh, because we we really don't want we don't want um, probably an answer to the prayer 
All right, the 11th failing, 59K. Says we know little of the holy importunity that ought to be used in prayer because our hearts are little in them. In other words, if we prayed more from the heart, then our hearts would much more often be in our praying. We're not really laboring, fighting, striving with all our heart, with all our strength, with our, all our soul. And yet our prayer should be without ceasing. Um, it should be continually and, and so on. All right, the 12th failing, 59L. And I, I really think this is, you know, a good reason for leaving this one last. It really sort of sums it all up, and that is uh, what we discover is we actually lack the faith to be heard. We faint, we despond, we give over. Uh, we, we just don't have faith that God is willing, able, and ready to grant what we ask. He says, we have to remember, the Bible says, if you're going to ask, you must ask in faith, nothing wavering. It quotes from James, you know, double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. You, you can't ask and waver while you're asking. You need to have faith that he is able, willing, and ready to grant whatever it is we're asking. All right, with that, um, we're at the end of chapter 4. Next time we'll be looking at chapter 5, where we will see that prayer is, in fact, a duty. And we'll be talking about that.